Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 47 of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, first thing I want to get out the way is have full transparency. Uh, I have new ads. I have new sponsorships. So for those of you that I don't know if you've been around for the full ride, this podcast started April 22nd, 2018. Uh, so it's been around for over a year. The first six to seven months, I didn't have any sponsorships, just went straight through, straight forward. Uh, the show started getting added different places. It started uh, gaining more and more uh, podcast distributors. It started getting uh, bigger numbers. It started popping up in different places. And when this happens... You start getting ad interest. So I got two ads early just before, like, I think after right before season one ended. I'm pretty sure you remember they were Anchor, the site that's, you know, distributes Dart Against Humanity. And the other one was Flipboard, which they're associated with heavily. Those two ads I added right before. I went on the first hiatus between season one and season two. And since I wasn't actively doing podcasts, I didn't get that much sponsorship ad revenue. Because again, I this was the downtime. When I come back, I'm like, oh, I finally understand how this works. So I think I explained it in one of my comeback episodes. I explained that what happens is you have CPM. So you have a number where you get a certain amount of money per thousand uh, views or listens, what have you. Now, if you do well, that CPM number goes up. And if you do well, you get more ads. Attract You attract more um more sponsors after season two happens I do better I get better numbers now I'm in season three there's been growth since then I've been added to a few places overseas so I see my numbers now and I see I'm actually getting listened to in countries that aren't even primarily English speaking so I know something's going to happen. My ads, uh, last Friday, I had two sponsorships end. Two days later, bam, I get hit with a sponsorship, get hit with another sponsorship. Another day goes by, I get hit with another sponsorship. So now I have three. Now, the reason why I'm even explaining all this to you is because typically when you listen to Dart Against Humanity, I go straight through. I just go straight through. And I just do the episode. And I have an ad at the beginning, usually. But with the CPM numbers I'm getting now, some of them require mid-roll ads. Why I'm telling you this is because I usually just record an episode all the way through. Now, after I see the CPM numbers, I'm willing to do the first half of the episode, stop. Slide in that mid-roll ad and then do another episode and then do the second part of the episode so I can split it up so I can talk about two different subjects. 
So I just want to open up this episode explaining that being fully transparent with my listeners that, hey, I used to listen to this podcast and wear no ads. And now all of a sudden this dude is like splitting his podcast up in half because, again, if I can actually make revenue from this and I can continue doing it. If you've listened to episode eight, which was Life of a Creative, you'll understand fully why I'm willing to do that. Shit, if Blue Chew was to come on here and had good enough CPM numbers, I'd be doing Blue Chew ads talking about, you know, erectile dysfunction and what have you. A, if I want this podcast to live, I want it to grow and whatever. And if revenue can allow for that to happen and for me to continue doing it, God damn it, I'm going to do it. So just want to just put that out there. Now, anyway, um, first thing I want to talk about today, now that I got that shit out the way, is I actually want to discuss the Wu-Tang documentary is up is in four pieces. If you have showtime, you can actually um, watch the entire thing or you'd have to wait to watch each episode as they air. Uh, it's called Wu-Tang of Mike's and Men. I believe it's produced by Mass Appeal, Sasha Jenkins of Mass Appeal. Some of you know him from um, Ego Trip. He's actually done several excellent documentaries recently. You should actually look for those. Now, why I'm specifically talking about is the Wu-Tang of Mike's and Men documentary and how some people love it and then some people feel some situation, some parts fall short and they wish there was more of certain things. Here's where the documentary works for me. So Wu-Tang Clan comes out officially. The first single came out in 1992. But then like it gets picked up because on Underground, as we hear it, 1992. It gets played for the first time December 1992 by uh, Stretch and Bob. Then in early 1993, it kind of spreads. If you look at an issue of the source in like early 1993, they actually talk about Wu-Tang Clan getting signed. So Wu-Tang Clan got signed by, got signed by um, Loud by Steve Rifkind. So cool. You see the picture of the Wu-Tang Clan in there looking all like dirty and there's a lot of them. You're like, damn, how's that going to work? You fast forward, uh, Wu-Tang Clan comes out with the official uh, Protect Your Neck single on Loud RCA. The video comes out. The video looks like it was made as like a class project by in high school. That's the kind of video equipment we had access to. It's grimy, it's dirty, but the thing is that it's the B-side that really takes off because you got Method Man by Method Man. So these two songs just take on lives of their own. They're being played all the time on um, BET's Rap City. Then, of course, you know, they eventually cross over to... Yo MTV raps with Dr. Dre, Ed Lover, T Money, Todd One, all them cats. But that two pronged attack was huge. And not only that, because Method Man 
and it protects your neck were on all the underground radio stations. They're on the mainstream radio stations. They're on the mixtapes that are coming out. It's getting played on the mix shows. People recording it from college radio. So it has every angle covered, right? Now, here's the thing about Wu. When the album comes out, um, the Enter the 36 Chambers, uh, Enter the Wu-Tang, that album, it was like you heard somebody make an album that pretty much encompassed all of your interests, talked about a lot of things that you were going through at the time, it kind of felt like you were hearing an album from your peers. And me at the time, Wu was only like, what, five, six, eight. Some of the members were older, but I didn't know that. Um, years older than me. And I used to always run around with my big brother, my big brother's friends, who were five, four, five, six years older than me. So I felt very familiar with what the Wu-Tang Clan were doing. The stuff they referenced, the... The material they sampled. I grew up watching um, Shaw Brothers films during um, Kung Fu Theater as a kid on Channel 56, Channel um, 25. When we finally had video stores open up, these were the movies that we would go rent. These were the movies that would play in the local um, theater, maybe the Saks 57. Uh, closer to downtown crossing Chinatown. These are the videos that my friends had in Chinatown, but it was different because they actually had multiple subtitles and just like white. That would, if someone wore white, you wouldn't be able to read the subtitles and all this and all the uh, movies would be in the in the original language, no dubs. And we'd just sit there and watch them because we'd seen them a million times, so we had an idea what the translation was or what the translation we were given was. Not necessarily what they were actually saying. But I say that to say that there was a lot of nostalgia involved in seeing the old members of the Wu-Tang Clan over 25 years later discuss their climb, discuss their uh, their lives growing up as youth in um, Staten Island or Brooklyn or what have you, coming down to Park Hill, uh, Seeing uh, Ghostface talk about growing up in Stapleton, them going to school, them experiencing racism in Long Island, which is something that like those of us that actually know about, you know, the racial makeup of Long Island, uh, Staten Island are actually aware of, but we haven't really heard them vocalize it. Talking to certain people. In their lives, you know, detailing things like that. That is where you see an old footage of them performing early. Jizza, Rizza, old dirty bastard. Um, the Just Do Me video being on um Ralph McDaniel's going through his archive, a video music box, you know, um the guys showing up on early like Cable music shows, Stretch and Bob talking about when they first encountered them. Mook, Mook was invaluable. Mook talking about the early days 
of moving uh, the first Wu-Tang 12 protect your neck after it got played on Stretching Bob and him going up and down the eastern seaboard doing it. Those things were invaluable. Those things were wonderful. Those things were amazing. I loved them. Now, later episodes. This is where shit got a little... I didn't really love the Silver Rings part. Talking about Wu-Tang International and RZA sliding in uh, the album that no one heard. Not really a big fan of that. Um, I feel as though most people were like, we could have done more about Killer Priest. We could have talked more about probably um, the Master Killer stuff. We could have talked more about Kill Army or Killer Sin or uh, Sons of Man. You know, the the side projects, a lot of dark men. They didn't discuss black or what black and white, which was odd, even though they did. They talked the power. Then when I think a lot of people, things turned left when uh divine came on screen, because a lot of people felt like divine. Some people felt like divine was a jerk or what have you. Divine was there to do business. And that was it. That was divine's part. He was there to do business. Power and divine were there early on. To be executives. I believe that the thing was that I liked how Mook and other cats still around broke it down. It they didn't necessarily realize that power and divine or divine and power were there early on, or know like their role in bankrolling certain things, and then later on they assumed full a full or uh, executive producer role. But if you look at the first single from 1992 you will see Divine's name right there on the executive producers list so it's like there's no way that you could not know but I just feel like a lot of people were just taken aback by how blunt he was Regarding his role or his business sense or his business acumen and the things he did in the name of Wu. And I kind of feel like once it got the business and people weren't thinking about necessarily the nostalgic things or the things that they loved about the Wu, their aura, their over and everything else. That that took away from their ability to... um suspend belief and just enjoy the documentary for what it was I also think like the old dirty bastard part it saddened a lot of people even though I knew a lot of that story with what was going on with him and him keep getting locked up coming out and then going over to um what was the rock before it became DDMG Dame Dash Music Group it was just really kind it was really depressing because of course I go on Twitter and I talk about like that stretch because I remember he wasn't really writing 
and he needed help to do stuff. Because again, he explained that he'd been away for close to five years. And that means that you don't know the slang, you don't understand what's going on uh, with the music, you don't feel uh, totally attached to it. So you just feel like you're just flailing your arms and you're just like doing whatever. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be like a viable artist like he was before. So in the end, I, I loved the overwhelming majority of Mike's and Men. I felt I wish that there were other things that they would have focused on. I mentioned some of them. I just... And then the other part is that they put out like music from Mike's and Men. It's seven tracks, but it's like three interludes. Or like three skits or something like that. So again, you get that feeling of, oh, they're back. They're doing this. They're doing that. But no, it's just half of what you wanted. So you want something from the Woo. The Woo's coming out. You're excited about it. And you get hit with like 57.1 and 66%, you know, satisfaction or maybe lower when you wanted at least 75 to 80. And that's where the disappointment lies with um, Wu-Tang and Mike's and Men. Had I done the documentary, here's the other thing too. Divine hasn't spoken in a long time. He just did the behind the scenes work and was quiet. Maybe you saw him on camera here and there. If you watch the documentary, you will see like, hey, he was with them in Japan. Hey, he was with them here. Hey, he was with them here. And if you remember, he was referenced on song a lot. Uh, Cappadonna, that's for the God, D-I-V-I-N-E, run. Like he'd been mentioned several times. On records, if you were actually paying attention, his name was always on records. And then a, one last thing was, um, people were talking about how uh, Allah Mathematics designed the Wu Tang logo for four hundred dollars, and how he must feel hurt and burnt that he only spent four, that he only got paid four hundred dollars for the Wu Tang logo. Just let me tell you something. I know quite a few people who will work for hire. And designers who did logos and did not get anywhere near four hundred dollars for their logo in nineteen ninety-two. First of all, from their family and friends, close friends, second of all, and third of all, I need to remind you that the woman who designed the Nike logo between nineteen seventy-one and nineteen seventy-two did it for thirty-five dollars. And then Nike didn't really properly compensate her until well over a full decade later when they offered her stock options. So between 1983-84, those stock options were worth, you know, like a few, like less, around 25000 between 25000 and $50,000. But those stock options later uh, went up to uh, half a million. So, you can be compensated for your work later. And we do not know how much RZA or Divine 
have compensated uh, or made a deal with, and possibly made a deal with, a lot of mathematics since his design of the logo and the logo's blown up and gone global and been all over merch. So, for everybody to talk about, oh, damn, I bet he feels bad about that 400. We don't know. If he was willing to go on to pull out the first books and show you where he did the logo, apparently he doesn't feel that bad about being paid because maybe he's still getting paid for it. Don't speculate. If we have dudes that actually set up a thing where it's like Wu-Tang careers where everybody was supposed to get paid from the same pot as opposed to doling out the money individually and he had the idea to get everybody signed to individual labels and then sign them to the one label I mean sign them to the one the one deal and everything else if these people with that forward thinking in business to go out and make the Wu-Wear store and all these other things and get into movies and film and and Rizla actually score films and all this other stuff. Please don't think that these guys aren't business-minded enough to know that they can go back and, and compensate the person who actually made the logo that encompasses all these things. Think, please. Alright, so second half, I'm going to talk about the 20th anniversary of a key album that most people don't talk about and a lot of people got the date wrong. Yeah, so the 20th anniversary of a crucial album compilation actually that dropped is Rockus Presents Sound Bombing 2. Now, if you have been paying attention on Twitter, I don't, I've, I'm pretty sure you may not have been. You have live, you have something else to do. Uh, Twitter accounts like Up North Trips and then all the other ones that just ape what they do and just RT stuff um, all erroneously tweeted that the 20th anniversary of Raucous's Sound Bombing Volume 2 came out April 27th 1999. Now here's the thing anybody who actually bought Sound Bombing 2 knows the date like the back of their hand because they remember everything that happened leading up to it. But not only that, but they also remember hearing raucous music everywhere. Because raucous had some deep pockets and they could really go into it with promotions. And raucous had made some serious inroads between 1997 when Sound Bombing 1 came out and spring summer 1999 when they released Sound Bombing 2. Another thing is that you know when Sound Bombing 2 dropped because there were ads everywhere. The na the date was in it was burnt into your memory. It was you saw the ads everywhere. That bright orange, those pictures, uh the design with the faces drawn on it was everywhere you look. They had promotional cassettes. They had the flyers cuz the street team was bananas. The street team was everywhere. I worked at Downtown Crossing at the time. I worked at a place called Hip Zeppi. You couldn't walk a block without seeing raucous, sound bombing to stickers, plasters, st uh, all over the place. So when you opened up a magazine in uh, spring, summer, 1999, you opened it up. You saw a two-page splash, bright orange. Raucous presents Sound Bombing 2 and the date right there, May 18th. May 18th. 
I had the promotional um, snippet tape, which was mixed by DJ Babu and J-Rock, which had uh, Funkmaster Flex screaming on it, which was crazy because Funkmaster Flex uh, playing backpack music on Hot 97. What, what's going on here? You know, you're experiencing this whole time. Oh, and another thing is that if you were of age and you could actually go to like a uh, foot action or you hung you had friends that like you know love basketball and uh, if you're brown I'm pretty sure you did and like they had a VCR who didn't one of the things that everybody did was they watched and one mixtape volumes 1 and 2 over and over and over and over and over again. They're both like under 20 minutes. So when something's short, people tend to play it again and again, rewind it, play it again. And the thing was it had music. And a lot of the music was from Ruckus. And the reason why is because the people that put it together were uh, two DJs. Uh, DJ Set Free and Next Millen. Next Millen, who a lot of us knew was part of the Nuthouse and um, I think he was associated also with the Deadly Snakes who were on um, Tommy Boy, a Tommy Boy Black Label at the time. I believe they were from Philly. Not 100% sure, but there was a connection there. The Nut House, I know, was from Philly. So you had Next Millen. He was like a producer, uh, uh, engineer, stuff like that. And then Set Free, who also worked with, I believe he worked, did he work with Cornerstone? And he also did like a bunch of um, like management, but he also worked closely with the guys at Rockus. They were everywhere. Raucous was everywhere. I remember watching uh, an episode of Rap City. And the episode of Rap City was all Raucous. And I was just like, yo, this is a full Raucous episode? Raucous, Raucous. You know, you see the razor. They're in the office. They're talking to Black Sean. They're talking to the ANRs. They're going back and forth with the artists. They're showing their um their show, the Sound Bomber Two show. You got Most Death performing. You got R.A. the Rugged Man getting naked and doing flips and shit like that. Just just going nuts. You know, you got Foul Munch. Just everything happening, and you're just like, yo, this is a big look. All of these things happen, right? So, sound bombing too was huge because, of course, the first sound bombing, I think it took a while for a lot of people to catch on because it came out in, like, late 1997. And I think most people caught on to the first sound bombing probably by spring, summer 1998 because they had to find, first realize that it existed. I got it as soon as it came out. Um, but... Throughout like 1998, you had uh, Lyricist Lounge Volume 1, which I loved. And I've heard from other people that they were disappointed by it. They were kind of let down. They expected more from it. Maybe the packaging. Some people say like the packaging was better than the actual project, which is nuts. But, you know, every to each, each their own. But I can understand why people said that. Um, the big thing, the cherry on top for a lot of people from Rockus was... When they released uh, the Black Star album, Taleb, Most Def and Taleb Kweli, a Black Star. That album was, of course, released on September 29th, 1998, 
regarded as well, I actually wrote a piece that said this, so I can't act like somebody else came up with this. Regarded as the last great release date. And I said it was the last great release date because it was right before it was before we got to the ever where um the P2P era and the RIAA and all these other things, the whole file sharing era really fucked up sales. Well, the crazy thing is that May 18th, 1999 comes at a crucial time for the music industry that stretch of late May 1999, right before we get to the first, second week of June 1999. I just want to remind you all, June 1st, 1999 is the date that Sean Fanning first released the beta version of Napster while being a student at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts in my neighborhood. It spread to a few hundred people in Northeastern, then a few thousand. Then it spread to to campuses around the area, which includes like Emerson College, Berkeley College of Music, Boston University. And then it would spread to MIT, Harvard, and from there, it spread everywhere. Wentworth, uh, Wentworth Institute of Technology, um, everywhere. So it goes from these 50 schools of institutes of higher learning in the 90 square miles in Boston and then spreads all up and down the eastern seaboard. And then from the eastern seaboard, it hits everywhere. That happened over two, three weeks. Napster had taken over the world. But Sound Bombing 2 had already, you know, came out and did numbers and was all over the place. And the video, uh, comments video for 1999 was huge on The Box. It was huge on uh, BT. Rap City, it was on the actual rotation. It was playing on MTV. That was like the trifecta. And his was crazy too. In mid to late May, uh, MTV, Viacom, had announced that they were acquiring the box. So for those of you uh, playing the game at home, that would have meant that... Uh, and, and the whole thing would have been finalized by, I believe, late June 1999. It was finally finalized late June 1999. So, okay. Before we get to July 1999, that means that Viacom owns the following music video networks. Listen. MTV. MTV2. Yes, MTV2 existed at the time. VH1. BT. And now The Box. If you made urban music or rap music, R&B, what have you, that's every goddamn network that if you own a label or if you're an artist that you want to get your your visuals out to, that you want to promote, that you want to do ad space with, they're all now owned by Viacom. It's kind of like how when you look at Disney, Disney owns everything now that Disney just acquired Hulu. 
So there was an argument that we had on Twitter talking about like what a monopoly is. And this guy was like, it's not a monopoly because you have choice. I was like, actually, you don't have choice. If you have Netflix and there's stuff that you want to see that's on Netflix, you have to go to another place. And that would be Hulu. Now, Hulu's owned by Disney. If you want these films or whatever, they're not going to be on Netflix anymore because Disney has their own thing. So you have to go to Disney. If you want to watch a basketball game, you got to go to either... Uh, a Turner network or you got to go to a Disney owned net network, whether it be ABC or ESPN. If you want to watch a baseball game, the baseball game of the week, you're either going to watch the MLB network or you're going to watch ESPN. ESPN is owned by Disney. You can't really avoid them. So it was the same situation in that terms. But here's the thing. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I could talk about in regards to sound bombing too, but I actually have an article that goes in depth with it. That it's going to be released, I believe, either today or tomorrow on um, OK Player, right? So, it's insane when you think about... Alright, I actually have the sound bombing too right here. It's beautiful because the person who actually did the design, the graphic design, the layout and everything else is nobody. So, nobody did a lot of amazing graphic design work. Uh, he was one of my favorites up there with um, Matt Do Read. Everything is doable. So looking at the credits, you got Eminem's Any Man, which was produced by uh, the Beat Miners. B-Boy Document by the High and Mighty, which was which featured most deaf and mad skills. They had a video for that, which got played on MTV, BET, and everything. Which was crazy. I was like, yo, it's got a video. Um, World War Three, which was Foul March and Shabam Sadiq. I was waiting for the Shabam Sadiq album because it was actually listed in here as it was coming out. And it never did. Stanley Kubrick by R.A. The Rugged Man. Another one-off song that R.A. The Rugged Man did with Capital The Crime Lord at Rock and Real. Crosstown Beef, which is... One of the many raucous 12s that I had that I loved to death. The B-side was Fala Lache, which I don't think many people really played that much. We just played Crosstown Beef to death. Boom, boom, boom. Keep us in Medina Green. DCQ. That shit was fire. And everybody thought like most Def was actually like in the group. And I think that was one of the big selling points. Is like it's his fam's group, so he does songs with them, but he's not necessarily in the group. It was weird. So uh Sir Menelik, Grand Poop, and Sadat X, 7XL. That's when he was pushing the group war committee right before Sir Menelik like really soured on Rockus. And of course, like the 12-inch for that came out. It was like a split 12-inch. There were five singles with 11 songs that came out from um Sound Bombing 2 on vinyl. This wasn't pressed on vinyl because most it was mostly a CD, a cassette thing. Because um, it was like a mixtape. So you had Chaos, Reflection Eternal, and Bahamadia. There was, Reflection Eternal was originally supposed to do an EP called Groundation. Uh, I have this thing called Rockus, The Cleaner. And it's clean versions of every Rockus song on CD. And people see it and they're like, yo, how'd you get this? And I'm like, dude, I'm a, I'm a backpacker. Everybody knew me. And in it, they have like sort of ads and it's like outlines their uh, plans coming up and the thing that they were going to do is they were going to put out the Groundation EP and originally it's weird because 
um, what ended up happening with uh, the Black Star album. The Black Star album reportedly was originally supposed to be an EP too. So it's supposed to be the Groundation EP and that EP. And then they just said, hey, um, let's just turn this into a full album. And a lot of people have this screwed up. They think that the album came out in August. It didn't come out in August. It got pushed back because there were delays and things happened with it. It was originally supposed to come out in August. It ended up coming out September 29th, 1998. All right. And in terms of um, release dates, I'm sorry that I had to throw some people under the bus. Uh, actually, no, I'm not. I meant to do that shit. I got sick of seeing um, albumism aping and repeating what the fuck they seen everybody else do on um, w- Wikipedia. So I made a video disproving the Special Ed's album was released on May 16th, 1989, because I showed the uh, charts, the top black album charts from May 20th, 1989. And I showed the Special Ed's album, Youngest in Charge, was already on the charts. It had been there. It was on its fourth week, and it was at number 51. It entered at number 78. It was at number 78 the second week. It jumped to 53, and now it was at 51. So that should shut everybody up. Please, don't go up here posting uh, dates of albums coming out. Do some fucking research beforehand. Don't embarrass yourself, or I will. Uh, don't embarrass Well, I'll embarrass you. Then you'll be embarrassed. I have to shame people after, into doing the right thing. Sound bombing, it was um, Dilated Peoples and Tash. Uh, Brooklyn Hard Rock, Thurston Howard III. Uh, Brooklyn Hard Rock was another raucous 12 that like, kind of took off. A lot of people interested in. It was a one-off joint that he did. Uh, I think Polo Rican and Brooklyn Hard Rock were on the same 12. And then he um, put out Skillionaire independently by himself. I remember buying it at um, Newberry Comics. I didn't even have to buy it from Sandbox Automatic. I just went right, it was right there already. I was like, damn, these people are fast. They got some great buyers. Farrell Monch, Mayor, which was fire. Um, Mayor's up there with um, Who Shot Rudy by Screwball and Julie by The Bad Seed is like anti-Giuliani songs. Look into it. Patriotism by Company Flow. Possibly the last real company flow song I'd say when it was um LP and Mr. Lynn after Big Just had already bounced Big Just went solo and he had signed with um Fiona Bloom's 321 records and he had a song out called like Plantation something he had a song called Gafflin Whips I remember that distinctly because I could never find a goddamn single um and then they put out Little Johnny from the hospital the week at the week, either the week before, or the week after, uh, DJ Spinner put out uh, Heavy Beats Volume One. They didn't really get promoted well. People didn't really understand why was it uh, why it was a um, it was a instrumental project, and there were no raps on it. I bought them both. I still have them. I remember the show that they did in Boston. I have the flyer. Anyway, jump ahead. 1999 x the video was played everywhere, had um, Talib Kweli in it with Harold Hunter, it had uh, DJ Babu was in the video, you know, everybody doing their little cameos, one, nine, nine, nine. The thing that blew me away was um, every rhyme I write, Shabam Sadiq and the Coco Brothers, the Coco Brothers had, were just recent signees. They couldn't be Smith & Wesson anymore because of the lawsuit, so they had just signed to Rockus. And I was like, oh, shit, Rockus is doing work. 
Most Def's Next Universe. Boop, 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 boop. Uh, the high tech beat. Are we on the same frequency? And then it was a Diamond D joint, or Diamond as he was known, when it um, pours the rains. And everybody's like, what? Reflection Eternal, On Mission, the last song. It felt like uh, On Mission and um, Next Universe were like recorded in the same session. So, you know, Nick Wiz got his thing on with every rhyme I write. Then the important thing. I'm holding this J card. Stay tuned to Rockus.com. All Rockus gear available at www.rockus.com. If you do not have internet access, call 212-358-7890 for a complete mail order catalog. Colors and sizes are subject to availability. You have the Rockus t-shirt. You have the Rockus scully. You have the Rockus gym bag. No, you have the Rockus gym shirt, my bad. You have the Rockus DJ bags available in green, black, and tan. It holds 50 records. Uh, if you put out a 12 with Rockus, sometimes they gave you a, a, a Rockus bag. I have one. I have a black Rockus bag. I love it. Um, you have the Razor R uh, Scullies, the R Blade, they called it. You have the Rockus Slip Mats. You know, you got the hats. And then on the side, it says Coming Soon, album from Most Deaf, The High and Mighty which came out August 10th, the week before my birthday. Um, Most Deaf, which came out in October. Uh, Reflection Eternal, Talib Kweli, DJ High Tech, I believe that came out like 2000. Shabam Sadiq, never happened. Uh, Feral March came out the week after Most Deaf, or the week before. Uh, I think it was October 12th and 19th, 1999. Company Flow, that's Little Johnny from the Hospital, which will come out the next month. Lyricist Lounge, which would come out later. There was no mention of the beat miners who had quite the time being signed to Rockus. Um, but yeah, there was the beat miners being signed. Later on, they signed Cool G Rap. That didn't go well. But again, they were blowing up a lot of times because they had just recently signed a new deal with um, for distribution. And that distribution deal was with a company that uh, many of you would know, Priority. And Priority allowed them as an independent to be able to um, compete with majors as far as reach were concerned. So one of the big things is when you're independent, you can't necessarily compete with the majors in terms of like putting out product and getting it in certain places. Priority could get you anywhere. There were doing millions of units with like Wu-Tang Clan. They were doing millions of units with like Ice Cube. You know, they were doing millions of units with like some of the biggest West Coast acts. So Priority had everywhere on lock. Having them in your back pocket as a distributor, it's not like having like Beggar's Banquet or Navarre. You know, you don't you don't have any problems getting your shit everywhere, and of course they had deep pockets for promotion, so they were on the radio, they were on television, they were they had connections. Anyway, so that's it. Uh, sound bombing two piece dropping either today or tomorrow on OK Player. Um, the first part of the Boston Legends. Uh. 
podcast is on the 4Boston 1V IV 4Boston uh, YouTube channel. The first part is me interviewing um, Abner Logan and Malcolm Wynn, famous guys, uh, amazing coaches in Boston. Uh, I'm going to do a research piece for a DJ booth that's going to be coming out next week. I'm going to make a, an announcement coming up in the next couple of weeks going into June. That's all I'm going to say. Thanks for listening. Dart Against Humanity 1.